Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. When languages fade away, when people stop speaking them, they often take their secrets with them. Some languages, though, they fade really slowly. They stick around long enough for us to know what's unique about them. So we really know the value of what we're losing. One such language is Udi. My maternal grandmother was Udi. This is a guy by the name of Alexander Kaftaradze. My maternal grandmother's uncle was Zino Basilikashvili. Alex and I are sitting on the flat roof of a house in a village in the Republic of Georgia. I don't know how well you know your geography, but we're in the foothills of the towering Caucasus Mountains. Alex's great-great-uncle, Zinobi Silikashvili, everyone today just calls him Zinobi, he was born in 1891, a little over 100 miles from here, in what's now Azerbaijan, but was then part of the Russian Empire. His family was well off. They had lots of lands. Um, they apparently also owned several silk factories. Zinobi himself, he went to receive education. He came to Georgia, to Tbilisi. He studied in Tbilisi Theological Seminary. You may not have heard of Tbilisi Theological Seminary, but back then it was one of the top places in that part of the Russian Empire to get your education. Another student who went there, who you will have heard of, was Josef Djukashvili, a.k.a. Joseph Stalin. Back to Zinobi. In 1920, he returned to his homeland. Only to find his people, the Udi people, caught up in the crossfire between two other ethnic groups. Even Zinobi's family, some members of Zinobi's family were targeted. For example, his father was killed during that period. His uncle, who was a priest, uh, was burned alive with uh, some of the other members of the Udi community in one of the houses. Alex says that his great-great-uncle decided that he needed to escape the fighting and bring as many Udis with him as he could. Some Udis thought that the only way to survive was to move somewhere else. And Zinobi led them here, and there were around 100 families that initially moved and started building the village and almost finished the entire village by the end of 1923. This was a time of lawlessness. The Russian Empire had collapsed, and the communist revolution there had led to civil war. Georgia briefly won independence, only to be reoccupied by Russian troops, who forced it to become part of the Soviet Union. When Stalin rose to power a few years later in the mid-1920s, many Georgians were proud that one of their own had risen to the top in Moscow. But he showed no signs of favoritism. During Stalin's great purge of the 1930s, thousands of Georgians were killed on trumped-up charges, among them Zinobi. He was executed by the Soviets in 1938. Tragic story that was shared in our family. My grandmother would often remember this story. She was only um, you know, a few months old when that happened, but she knew it from her mother um, and all the siblings. Everyone in this Udi village 
They speak of Zenobi as their savior, the man who delivered their ancestors to this safe place, who bankrolled the construction of the houses here, helped get businesses off the ground. And because Zenobi kept the Udis together, he guaranteed the survival of the Udi language. This village, by the way, is called Zenobiani. No prizes for guessing why. Today, people visit from all over the world, linguists, historians, and other scholars. They come not just to hear about Zenobi, but also about the early history of the Udis and about their language, an ancient language with its own alphabet that also happens to have a rare and quirky aspect to its grammar. So rare and so quirky, in fact, that Udi may be the only language to have it. From Quiet Juice and the Linguistic Society of America, this is Subtitle, stories about languages and the people who speak them. I'm Patrick Cox. Languages are departing this planet at an unprecedented rate. Like all of those near-extinct plants and animals, each of these languages is unique. I don't know about you, but I feel the need to know about these languages before it's no longer possible to. So in this episode, the story of Udi. One evening in Zenobiani, we pay a visit to Jenia Mamulashvili. <laughs> Jenia is 66. She and her husband greet us in Georgian, the language they use with visitors. When they're alone together, they speak Udi. Jenia is unnecessarily apologetic about her English. It was uh, 42 years before. I cannot remember. Um, Jenia is a grape and hazelnut farmer. But in her spare time, she writes poetry, often in Udi, like this one. Most of Jenia's poems are personal and heartfelt. And this one's no exception, though it's not about someone she knows. It's about Zinobi, the founder of this village, and how the story of what he did for Udi speakers must be passed on to the children here. Zinobi is our man. Mm-hmm. I, my, mm-hmm. my grandfather. The Udis themselves, their language has been documented since antiquity. This is Thomas Weir. He's a linguistics professor who grew up in Texas and now teaches at the Free University of Tbilisi. That's Georgia's capital, a good place to study languages. Something like 50 languages are spoken in the Caucasus region. Tom is in Zenobiani too. He and I took the two-hour ride here with Alex. He's working with Udi speakers, helping them devise ways to keep people speaking the language. Their language was first written down as far as we can tell, in the 4th, 5th centuries AD, after the advent of Christianity. That was one of the languages, or the language, spoken in a kingdom in a part of what's now Azerbaijan. It was called the Caucasian Albanian Kingdom. It has nothing to do with modern-day Albania. Sometime around the 8th century, the Caucasian Albanian Kingdom and its documents were destroyed. Later on, we don't know quite when, Udis without a nation they stopped using their alphabet. Over the centuries, it became a bit of a myth. People questioned whether the Udis 
really ever had their own alphabet. But so it was only in the 20th century when a manuscript was discovered on Mount Sinai that proved that they not only had an alphabet, but they actually used it and they had used it to write and express their own ideas and thoughts, often of a religious nature. Knowing now that they really did once have this writing system, Tom says, it's an incredibly useful status symbol for the Udis. Just the fact that it does have this ancient written heritage is a very strong kind of talisman of their identity. Um, it's something that makes them completely unlike the many other very interesting but different groups of, of the Caucasus. Like besides Georgian and Armenian, none of the other indigenous languages of the Caucasus were, were written down with their own alphabet in late antiquity. And so that's something that they can really hold on to. Okay, reality check here. Zinobiani is a village of maybe 300 people. People younger than 40 generally don't speak the language. There are Udis elsewhere, some in Russia, a few thousand in Azerbaijan, and increasingly also in Armenia. Remember I mentioned before that the Udis who built Zinobiani were escaping persecution after being caught in the crossfire between two other groups? Well, those groups were Azeris and Armenians, and they've been at loggerheads on and off for hundreds of years, most recently in the disputed region of Nagorno-Karabakh. When conflicts break out, the Azeris don't trust the Udis because they're Christian, like the Armenians, and the Armenians don't trust them because, well, they're not Armenian. And the flare-ups, they're still going on. Recently, a group of Udis were deported to Armenia. So, there aren't many Udi speakers, probably less than 20,000. They're struggling to pass the language on to the younger generations, and they're scattered over several countries. So what are Udi speakers and their supporters doing about that? That's coming up after the break. Here's another podcast I love, and I think you will too. It's called The Vocal Fries. And as part of recommending The Vocal Fries to you, I'm going to make an admission. I am guilty of judging other people's language. Misplaced apostrophes, use of the word irregardless, American use of the word entree to mean main course. I mean, come on. But as the wise people at The Vocal Fries point out, there's no point in me or you getting riled up. It's not going to make anything better. If anything, it'll make things worse. Here's an example. The thing the podcast is named after, Vocal Fry. Something, for the record, that I have no problem with. But a lot of people do. Some people even believe Vocal Fry harms the vocal cords. It doesn't. If you want to know more, much more than I can tell you, you must listen to the Vocal Fries. In each episode, hosts linguist Kerry Gillan and Megan Figueroa, they make you laugh. But they also take on some aspect of speech or language that some people are just repelled by. They find out why the repulsion came into being and, no spoilers, why it's misplaced. Want to know more about the language of K-pop or dialect coaches or internet memes? Listen to The Vocal Fries at Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. And as Carrie and Megan say, keep calm and fry on. During our time in Zenobiani, 
Alex, the great-great-nephew of Zenobi, takes Tom the linguist and me to meet the village's oldest living Udi speaker. We also visit a chapel on a hill above a village. It's built on foundation stones brought from the Udi community in Azerbaijan that the founders of Zenobiani had fled from. We also go to a recently erected statue of Zenobi. Below is a plaque with his name inscribed, not just in Georgian, but also in the Caucasian-Albanian alphabet. And just when I'm beginning to wonder if everyone in Zenobiani is living in the past, I meet Anna. My name is Anna Aichikashvili. Okay. (laughs) Aichikashvili. Bajikashvili. Aichikashvili, yeah. I can't say that thing. <laughs> you know, it's really hard even for Georgians but, to, oh to really? say. Yeah, oh, so that, that's a specific Udi sound. Yeah, yeah. Anna didn't think about history when she was a kid. In fact, she didn't even know that her grandfather was a migrant from Azerbaijan until after he died. She only started realizing she didn't share the same history as other Georgians after noticing so many foreigners were visiting the village. When I saw first Americans and Europeans in Zinoviani, I became interested in, oh, wow, why these people are coming here? What's the reason? Something in my inner said that it was uh, important and worth to do something and to think about this. And, you know, then I, I decided to make some, some things here. Anna started lobbying the Georgian government to invest in the village. It's in the heart of gorgeous wine country, but you wouldn't know it. Bad roads, no winery tours, nothing like that. The European Union eventually agreed to kick in some money, and now roads are being paved. Anna and her husband have restored and expanded the house that her grandfather built. And this past summer, they opened a guest house in a part of it, serving traditional Udi dishes al fresco. Also, this. This is inhalers. Under the inhalers, there are beehives. Her guest house, uh, Anna says, has Georgia's first and only apotherapy retreat, where visitors can inhale the air of beehives. It's alternative therapy for people with respiratory issues or immune disorders. So you can switch on, and it has different five different speeds. You may wonder, and I did, what bee inhalation therapy may have to do with an ancient language in danger of dying out. I think that this and all of the other things that are happening in Zenobiani, the visitors, the rebuilding, the statute of Zenobi, they've changed the place. Few people are moving away. In fact, some are coming back to live, like Anna. She says attitudes here have changed too. Many years ago, when I was a kid, it was kind of shame to say that you're Udi, because I, I remember my classmates, you know, laughed at me when I started talking about my nationality and my uh, ethnical culture. We've made some kind of discrimination that also became reason to stop studying. And now it's becoming more and more popular, I think so, because people also want to be involved in kind of activities. Some of them came here and asked me the questions, how can we arrange guest houses? Can you help us? We also want to see tourists here. And being Udi is becoming, I think, popular and people are not ashamed. I think that um, kids will be 
We need to work very much with them to make them sure that it is important to maintain your your own pasts, you know, your own roots. And language is the only one we, which we have. We have to stimulate them, I, I think so. And then we can see the results. I asked Tom Weir about this. What kind of results are we talking about for the people of Zenobiani and, and Udi's elsewhere? What might they expect to get out of all of this? Is pride in being Udi and determination to pass that on to younger generations, is that enough to keep people speaking the language? Before I give you his response, there's something else about Udi I want to tell you. Something that raises the stakes for its survival. There's a grammatical characteristic of Udi, kind of a grammatical tick, that some linguists believe is unique to the language. It happens when you inflect verbs. We don't pay that much attention to it because in English, most verbs don't inflect as much as they do in other languages. So for example, the boy kicks the ball, right? So kicks consists of a, a stem, a kick plus S. And that tells you that it's third person singular, right? So the boy kicks. And so Udi has person agreement like that too, but the suffix doesn't just stay stuck at the end like the S in English does. It moves around, it moves to other words in the sentence, and it can also move, be stuck into the middle of roots in Udi. So that S at the end of the root verb kick, in Udi, it could end up anywhere, including right in the middle of the verb. So for kick, it could be K-I-S-C-K. And this is actually maybe truly unique in all the languages of the world. There's a little bit of debate among linguistic typologists about whether this is unique, but that's something that linguists have always thought was completely impossible. That well, it was, I mean, it was yeah. something that many theories have been written with the express desire <laughs> to rule out that kind of possibility. And the fact that it exists in Udi means that it's a real possible thing because we wouldn't even know languages could do that if we didn't know about Udi. So the loss of a single language could be the difference between knowing we can, that languages can do that and languages cannot do it. It could be like that. Okay, as an argument to try to keep people speaking Udi, this grammatical peculiarity, it may not stack up that high among the villages of Zenobiani. Let's face it, the placement of verb affixes doesn't come up that much in everyday conversation. But it makes you realize, it makes me realize, what may be lost every time a language goes silent. Add to that Udi's ancient alphabet and the story of the Exodus in 1922, and, well, Udi's making quite the case for itself. As I mentioned, I did ask Tom what he thought the results would be of all of this newfound activity among Udi villagers and activists, people like Anna and Alex, and how much of a difference they'd be able to make. Would their efforts be enough to keep Udi afloat? Here's Tom's answer. I think that right now it's, it's kind of sliding into oblivion. I think that uh, unless something is, is done very soon, within the next few years, really, it will not survive. So it needs active community support, both inside and outside the community. It's ultimately up to the community how they perceive the value of their own language. Languages don't usually die by, by murder. Sometimes they do, <laughs> but, but a lot of times languages die by suicide, in effect, because the communities feel like they literally feel, they literally assign an internal emotional value to that aspect of their culture. And when they feel like that aspect of their culture is not valuable, then 
it's not a priority for them. It's not important. I don't think Tom's downplaying the efforts of language activists within the community. He's just looking at the broader picture. What happens with a language when an entire generation decides not to pass it on to their kids? Turning that around is a huge challenge, even when attitudes change and people want to re-embrace the language. In that sense, Udi is anything but unique. It's happening all over the world. Before we leave Zenobiani to drive back to Tbilisi, Alex, Tom, and I stop off at a vineyard just outside the village. It's on land owned by our poet friend, Jania Mamulashvili, and her husband. She told us to come here. She wants to give us grapes to take back to the city. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? It's our grapes. Jania, she likes to be called Jane by English speakers. She hands us a couple of massive buckets to fill. There's just time for her to give Tom a quick udi lesson. Tom and Alex will be back soon. Tom is recording certain undocumented aspects of the Udi language. He also wants to start a sort of exchange class with villagers. He teaches them English and they teach him Udi. Alex is helping organize a celebration in the village to mark the 100 years since Zenobi and the others arrived here. But now, we're off. Goodbye, da, goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Jane. Oh, <laughs> very good. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thanks to everyone we met in Zenobiani for taking time out from the grape and hazelnut harvest to chat. Thanks also to Thomas Weir for telling me about Udi in the first place and to Alexander Kaftaradze for all of the introductions and for driving us to Zenobiani. Also to Masho Lomashvili, Natalia Antalava, and Andrew North. Over to Kavi, who's here in person, sitting right next to me for the first time in how long, Kavi? Oh, it's been since early 2020, so since uh, before the pandemic that we were recording in a room together. Tina Toby is our sound designer. Alison Shaw manages our social media and newsletter. If you're a regular listener, you'll know about the newsletter. If not, consider signing up. It's free. It's fun. There's sometimes silly photos of us and the people we interview, plus a bunch of language-related stories in the news. This is the final episode in our current series, and because of that, we'd like to thank a few more people. Nina Porzuki, Christina Quinn, Shiko Theori, Leia Lem, Oluwakemi Aladasuye, Laura Wagner, Megan Ellenbow, Jeremy Helton, Julia Kamari Drapkin, Andrew Sussman, Alina Simone, Bob Gawley, Kirk Chow, Jackie Mao, Nola Cox, Sauli Pillay, and Talia Pillay. Also, special thanks to two people who helped behind the scenes with a couple of episodes and who I forgot to thank back then. Take a bow, Daniel Offman and Henry Sessions. Special thanks also to four linguistics professors who have ably advised us this season. Barbara Bullock, Nicole Holliday, Lynn Murphy, and Jacqueline Toribio. Also to Alison Reed, Katha Kisman, and everyone at the Linguistic Society of America, and to the World Public Radio Program. Last but not least, our thanks to the National Endowment for the Humanities for their continued support. 
Subtitle is a member of the Hub and Spoke Audio Collective. We're a group of podcasters who seek out untold stories about people and history and culture, and of course, language. Another Hub and Spoke podcast is The Briny. This is a podcast about how we're changing the ocean and how the ocean changes us. In the latest episode, a sea turtle conservation group comes up with an unusual business plan to keep its operation afloat. It builds a rum distillery. Their hope is that creating jobs could be a way to fight the root causes of turtle poaching. Check out The Briny and all the Hub & Spoke podcasts at hubspokeaudio.org. We'll be back next spring with another season. Who knows, there may be an emergency episode between now and then. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. And wherever you are, be well, stay safe, and stay healthy. Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Exploring the human endeavor. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.